Welcome to this podcast hosted by Nadina Doherty and myself, Hans Grellen, at the University of Sheffield School of Education. In this series of podcasts, members of the school and colleagues will be discussing their latest work and study in education. This series of thought-provoking podcasts will encourage a rethinking of taken-for-granted assumptions about the role of education in society, its mission and its effects. Have you got your coffee ready, Ansgar? I do. Okay, let's get started. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Svenja Helmus, a PhD student at the School of Education and co-author of the recently published book titled Life for the Academic in the Neoliberal University. As described on the blurb, the book investigates the impact of neoliberalism on academics in today's universities. Considering the experiences of early career researchers, as well as more experienced academics, it outlines the changing nature of working life in the university, precipitated by the reality of deprofessionalization, worsening conditions of employment, and general precarious existence. The book traces the dramatic shift in the role and function of universities and academics over the last 40 years. It considers how capitalist neoliberalism drives universities to operate like businesses in a cutthroat, financialized education marketplace. Uniquely, the book then provides a possible alternative in the form of the National Education Service and what this alternative system could look like. So that was the blurb. Uh, Henry Giraud has described it as a groundbreaking book that not only details with great rigour and clarity how higher education has become an outpost of neoliberal violence, as he writes, but also points out how neoliberalism has created an existential crisis for those faculty, students and others who believe that the university has an obligation to cultivate those capacities, forms of knowledge and values that deepen and extend the practice of freedom essential to any democracy. Richard Hall has described it as an important book which should ignite much needed discussion and action. Stephen Ball has described it as a chilling read, but important because the critical analysis is dire, but the alternatives presented are optimistic. This is high praise. Svenja, it is great to be speaking to you and to have the opportunity to discuss your book I wonder if I could begin by asking you how you came to co-write this book. What caused you to write a book describing the plight of the academic in today's university? Um, hi Ansgar, thank you for inviting me. I think it all started when I was writing my MA dissertations a couple of years ago, where I wrote about the proletarianization of academic labour and the effects this has on academics and the students they teach. Mm -hmm. I was a postgraduate student myself at the time, so I saw many of the problems that financialization and marketization caused for academics and how this impacted on students like myself. Lectures were given to more than 100 students at times, although I was told the number increased a lot since then. Okay. Uh, the seminars were predominantly led by PhD students who were paid a fraction of what the full-time staff was paid. Some of the lectures we only saw for one specific lecture, so there wasn't much time to discuss ideas or explore ideas. Mm. We were also affected by the pension scheme strike action that took place. And as mentioned in the book, not everyone was as understanding, especially some international students who had paid large sums of money to study here felt like they were missing out. And many of our conversations were focused on that topic. 
Mm. Um, so a number of issues that we discuss in the book were very visible to me as a student. And uh, then I gave a presentation about this topic at the International Conference on Critical Education in London. And Alpesh, who was one of the organizers of the conference, saw it. He used to be my lecturer during my undergrad degree. So he's very familiar with my work and I'm with his. And he then approached me and asked whether I wanted to co-author because some of his work fitted well with mine. Yeah. I obviously said yes. Yeah. Until then, I had planned to turn my dissertation into a journal article, but a book publication with someone who's much more well-known than I am is an opportunity too good to miss, especially considering the issues we discuss in the book. Okay, great. So how, how long did it take you to write the book then? What, what period of time did you write it over? I think about five months, four or five months. Four or five months. Yeah, but that's including, well, us writing it and then sending it off and then it coming back with some editing stuff right. to do and then sending it off again later. Okay. Yeah. And that was building on a lot of work that you'd done before that as well. Yes, so, some, so we, we put stuff together and then we added a few things. Right. Okay. So in your book you offer, amongst other things, a critique of the neoliberal university and you, offer, you explore how capitalism under neoliberalism has impacted on the kind of place that university now is and the kind of thought that the teaching of a university can offer. Um, you focus on a range of issues such as the influence of privatising forces on the university, the increased focus on reputation and branding, increased surveillance within the institution, performance management of staff and the focus on developing competitive entrepreneurial academics as they're sometimes called and students too. Many of these issues will be all too familiar to people listening to this podcast, I think, um, but not everyone listening will have experience of working within university. So I, I'm not asking you to rehearse the argument of the book, because clearly that's far too much for a podcast, um, but I was hoping or wondering if you could explain to those who do not have direct experience of working in university how the trends you identify are influencing and distorting, in your view, academic life. And could you explain why this is something that we should be concerned about? Mm, sure. There are a few things that I would like to mention here. Firstly, I think because higher education has been turned into a commodity, we are often pursuing it for the wrong reasons. Okay. We're not necessarily studying because we want to generate knowledge or explore ideas, but because we're told it will allow us to get a better job or and make more money okay. in the future. So you're talking about students here? Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so the incentive is different really. Mm. Um, and almost all degree programs nowadays state that developing skills to think critically is part of their course. But that's not necessarily true because criticality is not always appreciated within the university. Okay. It is appreciated as long as it serves the system when money can be made with it, for example through citations or increased publicity for the uni but reflective criticality, where someone actually articulates the problems that neoliberalism causes in the university, that's not really appreciated. Mm. So while we are told we will gain certain skills, these are very much defined by the university's needs. And then the university spends a lot of time branding itself as a place that is worth investing in, and some disciplines are more valuable to the university than others, mm. um, especially those where historically critical thinking um, was emphasised or where you know questions were explored and topics related to society or social order were investigated. 
something like philosophy or sociology, education, that doesn't generate much income for the university, although most people would argue education is crucial for any society, right? Mm. Uh, so despite its importance, there's not a lot of money and very little emphasis on the study of education within university compared to, example, for example, engineering. Um, we are told that education should advance society and contribute to the economy, but in reality, education's role is instrumental and the contribution part is its main focus. So a field of study that generates entrepreneurs who are believed to contribute to the economy is much more valuable in terms of monetary value than a field of study that is concerned with democracy and society as a whole. Yeah. But I would argue that education and those working within it should be committed to progressive social and political change. But I guess that depends on your priorities and whether you want things to change. If we think about the current political climate in this country, and especially invo the involvement of the media, it could be argued that people are too easily influenced by what politicians promise without questioning them or their motives. So what happens in universities, or doesn't happen, very much relates to life outside of universities and is therefore something we should all concern about. Okay. Um, as I read your book, there's one thing that I felt was particularly interesting in your critique. Um, was your focus on new and prospective academics and postgraduate students. Um, this is something that makes your book quite unusual, I think, as a critique of higher education, because you focus on how the challenges now faced by those who are early in their careers are very different, as you, as you argue, from the challenges that were faced by those academics who already have established and, in some cases, long-standing careers. Why was this focus important, uh, do you think, for a book like this? And what can we learn here, not only about the plight of new and prospective academics, but those in the academy, or mm -hmm. about the academy more generally? Yeah, um, I think my own experience as a postgraduate student um, and that of early career academics I know and work with made it clear that this aspect should be discussed in the book. Where you could say the next generation of academics and we are entering this profession at a time that is, I would argue, more difficult to navigate than in the past. I know many uh, early career academics and although I'm still studying, I experience similar issues. Mm. As I mentioned previously, certain disciplines experience a shortage of funding that doesn't necessarily exist in other disciplines. So, for example, applying for a scholarship to do a PhD is a challenge and there are thousands of others who also apply. So there's already a degree of competition involved at this stage. And as someone who doesn't enjoy working in a competitive environment very much, I find it incredibly exhausting, even at this stage. And people seem to internalize this mindset very quickly, and they constantly compare themselves and their progress to others, even as students. And the constant comparing and judgment that comes with it is all related to internalized performativity. So when we see that performance measurements don't really necessarily have to come from the university. We're at a point where we do the comparing ourselves. Mm. And with that comes alienation, not just from each other, but also from our work. When you hear people talk about how the constant pressure impacts on their mental health and how some have fallen almost out of love with their research or their research topic, it's quite alarming. And more specifically related to early career academics, the university's focus on branding and selling education as a product and academics having to keep the customer happy by producing more materials that the university can use is also exhausting. 
And then there's the idea of the academics being most valuable to the academy when they manage to secure external funding opportunities or publish paper after paper or even books. Our book is pretty much part of that because even though we think we have something to contribute, the publication also looks great on our CVs. Mm. Uh, in addition to that, all um, working conditions have changed and the work of academics is increasingly casualized. A lot of early career academics are on short-term contracts or hourly paid lecturers who do the same work, sometimes more than established academic because they have to prove themselves to the academy. But they're not paid the same. They don't get holiday pay, they don't contribute to their pensions. So there's a lot of insecurity evolved at that level and like I mentioned previously, it impacts academics' mental health tremendously. It's almost like a divide and rule situation. Okay. It's not only new academics that feel the enormous pressure, but when working conditions are different, it automatically pitches individuals against each other, or because some feel they are treated unfairly. And those whose working conditions have worsened over time, or who don't want to partake in the rat race, or who simply feel like they can't take any more of it, most often see quitting as their only way out. And that's why we mentioned Quitlet in the book, the literature highlighting the various reasons why academics leave the profession. And we also speak about the case of Joyce Kanan, who unfortunately passed away. She was very vocal about the impact that the current state of higher education has on academics, not just mentally, but also physically. And I saw a tweet just yesterday of an academic saying how her partner's contract was just extended for another three months. She herself is also on a short-term contract. So both adults in the house live with a constant uncertainty about their employment, but they also have three kids to raise and a mortgage to pay. All that is very compelling. And what you're describing there is how the academy presents a very different prospect to new and prospective academics today. Um, in that, it, it expects um, people coming into the profession, as you've described, to contort themselves and, and conform to expectations that are performance-driven, as you've said, and may not reflect the values underpinning their work, which is where you know, the alienation might come in. Um, I was wondering, do you think there is potential misunderstanding or underappreciation of the difficulty faced by more junior colleagues within mm -hmm. the academy? Yeah. I think it depends on the reason someone decides to become an academic, whether that is as a researcher or as a lecturer. As a researcher, for example, if you generally care about a topic, but the university, or even if you think much broader, the editors of journals or publishers don't think your area of interest is worthwhile, and by that I mean sellable enough, then it will be very difficult. You need to show that you can publish and that you can secure funding. In many cases, that means publishing something that you're not passionate about or rewriting things to make them more appealing or applying for another project funding that you don't really have any academic interest in. And if you enter the career with a love for teaching or educating students, but you're constantly reminded that there's another paper to write, then the reason you entered your job takes a backseat. Or if you want to be the kind of teacher who challenges their students, you have to be aware that some students, especially those who have internalized the mindset of a consumer, don't necessarily want to be challenged or don't want to interact with you. So when, you don't, when they don't enjoy your classes, they most likely won't rate you very highly when it comes to module evaluations at the end of term. And the university takes students' feedback very seriously. Evaluations and league tables are already such a big part of university life. 
we already have the ref and the TEF. Soon there will be a CAF, a knowledge exchange framework, yeah. so it doesn't seem to stop. No, okay. There is some hope, though, I think, um, which comes towards the end of your book, where you explore how the university might yet be reformed in the UK. Um, and here, your focus in particular is on the National Education Service, which was part of the 2017 Labour Party manifesto and is also included as a policy commitment in their current 2019 manifesto. Um, a National Education Service would, I understand, represent a coordinated commitment to all stages of education, not only the university, um, but you know all other stages. And part of the thinking behind it, as, as far as I understand it, would be to seek to redress the damage done to education by previous governments over the last, I don't know, two, three decades or more. Um, could you explain how in the book you conceptualise and justify the idea of a national education service? Because um, my sense was that you're, you're not just restating a commitment in the Labour Party manifesto, you're taking an idea and developing it further. Um, and I was wondering if you could also explain, given your analysis of the state of the university today, how it might address some of the problems that you've outlined. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, firstly, I have to say that Alpesh was the one who wrote this chapter, mm -hmm. so my knowledge on this is uh, limited. <laughs> I think most importantly, the NHS... Uh, well, no, I mean, you say NHS, <laughs> yes. like, that's the slip of the tongue, <laughs> well, it's a similar idea, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, NHS yes. Um, yeah, the NES works in the same way as the NHS, mm. in its original form at least, so before it was quasi-privatised. Um, the NES would uh, be a common good that everyone has access to, which is funded by the taxpayer and therefore comes without the involvement of tuition fees and the accompanying debt that so many of us carry around for decades. Mm. Regarding the problems we currently have within higher education and the ones we discuss, the NES would not be subjected to commercialised market forces, therefore universities would not have to try and sell their educational product to customers. Therefore, lecturers then would not have to keep the student consumers happy and also wouldn't have to generate money for the university by applying for the external funding that I mentioned earlier. Obviously, these changes cannot be implemented overnight, but rather they would manifest gradually, which is why our chapter is called Towards a National Education Service. But wouldn't it be nice if one day academics could actually do research they're generally interested in rather than pursuing research that generates the most income or looks best on CVs. Okay. All right, so to finish, um, I was just wondering, now your book is out, it's being read, people are engaging with your work, I was wondering what kind of impact you're hoping <laughs> your book would have. Yeah, uh, there, there are two things that we would like people to take away from reading our book. Firstly, we would like people to be aware of the detrimental effects that capitalism, and in particular neoliberalism, has on the role of academics, mm -hmm. especially those early in their careers. Secondly, we are hoping it shows how much need there is for an alternative. For decades we have been told that there is no alternative, but considering what we talk about in the last chapter, we hope people see that there is an alternative that is not hopeless. So after 40 years of TINA, there is no alternative, there is a feasible alternative available which is why the general election is so important. Oh, and then on a personal level, I'm hoping that once people have read this book, they might also be interested in my other work. As a PhD student and as a prospective academic, the current climate in the university isn't a particularly friendly and welcoming environment, so people being aware of others' work is important, especially for those starting out. Okay. 
Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss your book. Um, I look forward to seeing what kind of reception it gets. Thank, thank you. you for inviting me. Thank you.